Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Scrib Chat, the only podcast that connects you to your favorite authors through insightful conversations about their latest and greatest works. I'm David Pemberton, and today I'll be speaking with author Lisa Ko. Ko is the author of The Leavers, which was shortlisted for the National Book Award in addition to winning the Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. It was also named one of the best books from 2017 by NPR, Entertainment Weekly, The Los Angeles Times, BuzzFeed, and Bustle. It's a sizable accomplishment, especially considering that the book is Ko's first novel. The Leavers was inspired by an article that Ko read in the New York Times that focused on an undocumented Chinese mother who gets separated from her Canadian son after trying to bring him to the United States. The novel explores the themes of immigration, identity, and culture. And I have to say, I really enjoyed reading it. The prose is rich and colorful and bright, and Ko writes with an air of suspense that keeps pace with the best horror writers, all while grounding her characters in an incredibly intimate dialogue. In short, it's a masterclass in fiction, and it is so because it captures the best of what fiction can do. And by that I mean the book transmits the perspective of the author with a sense of empathy that's extremely rare. That's why Lisa Ko is now one of my favorite authors, and I think after you read The Leavers, she'll be one of your favorites too. And with that, I think it's about time to jump right into it. Here's my conversation with the indomitable Lisa Ko. I read somewhere that The Leavers was inspired, at least in part, by an article that you read in the New York Times, and I was kind of wondering if you could sort of walk me through that. Sure. So, yeah, the initial inspiration for The Leavers, um, back before it was a novel or even a tiny piece of a novel, was actually, as you mentioned, an article I read in the New York Times by a journalist named Nina Bernstein, and it was published back in the spring of 2009. And it was about an undocumented Chinese immigrant whose name was Xu Ping Chang. She'd been found in a Florida detention center for, she'd been there for almost two years and was often in solitary confinement. And she also, in the article, it said that she had a son who she had tried to bring into the U.S. as well, I think through Canada. And he had gotten also caught up with immigration and, um, gotten adopted by a Canadian couple. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, you know, I just kind of started reading more about her and about other similar cases that I hadn't known were happening of undocumented immigrant parents who'd been separated from their children. Wow. That is, firstly, it's horrifying, but I, I can definitely see that is reflected in the levers, which kind of leads me to wonder, for you, when you were doing that research and like when you ran across these stories, why was it important to fictionalize that story and, and stories like it? Well, I think, you know, I'm just a fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a journalist, right? <laughs> so there, there's a bit of, I think there's a bit of freedom that we, we can get um, with writing fiction instead of writing journalism, um, you know, especially for those of us who aren't trained in it, because, sure, you know, sure. you don't necessarily have to have everything um, fact-checked, although, you know, I did definitely do my share of research and my share of interviews as well. Um, but, you know, I think when you're writing when you're writing a novel, um, you also kind of have the ability to use that form to kind of create a dramatic story that can really reach readers in a certain way. So, you know, there's, there's that sense of freedom as well um, with regards to structure and, and plot mm-hmm. and character, yeah. For sure. It's interesting that you bring that up um, as well, because I've noticed, you know, in doing some research, you've done a lot of writing for some different, I guess you'd call them online publications, websites. But I also uh, saw that you started writing The Leavers in 2009. So 
I guess just what was that process like for you uh, after you decided to write it? Like when you when you got the idea to turn the story into a novel and not necessarily, you know, write it as an opinion piece. Right. Um, like what was that process like? Well, it actually started out as a short story. Um, oh. I, I was in graduate school at the time and I happened to be taking a short story class. And I kind of always knew I wanted to write a novel. I've been working on a collection of short stories on and off for many years and published some and, you know, not others, um, and was kind of ready to try something new, I guess, just to sort of get my mind off of that project. So, you know, instead, of course, I started on something that I didn't realize would take me seven or eight years to finish. Um, But yeah, you know, it started out originally as a short story uh, regarding, and it it was about a character named Polly, who ended Mm -hmm. up being one of the protagonists in my book. And that story was later published in Narrative Magazine and kind of you know, felt inspired to keep going with that. Um, and, and so I was like, yeah, why not? Let's, you know, this seems like it could be good territory for a longer project because I kind of kept thinking about those characters. Um, and so I started just writing a novel. And, you know, I, I went into it knowing absolutely nothing about writing a novel. Mm-hmm. And just having read many, many of many novels over over my lifetime, so you know, just kind of started writing and writing and writing and deleting and writing more um, and figuring it out kind of as I went along. Not a very efficient process, but you know, was kind of the way I got there eventually. I mean, I don't know how to write a novel, but I would imagine that there is no efficient process to write a novel. Maybe for someone like. Uh, Stephen King or someone who kind of produces novels every few months, but right. Um, do you? Do you find like that you have to sort of force yourself to sit down and write? Well, it was more like I wanted to write. Mm-hmm. You know, the thought of having like having written is always better than writing. Oh, um, yes. <laughs> oh, oh yes. <laughs> you know, really having done most anything is, is yeah. like uh, work related, especially. So yeah, you know, I always had the desire to keep writing. It never kind of goes away. You know, maybe it's my workaholic tendencies, and but you know, I had to sort of balance that in with you know, regular jobs to pay the bills and that sort of thing. So it was really just kind of finding the time in my schedule to do that. But I really wanted to finish it. So I'm very much driven by this desire to finish. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm a chronic finisher, for better or for worse. That's a a great affliction. (laughs) It can be kind of bad because sometimes you end up finishing things that you should probably have put aside, like, you know, or kind of maybe it wasn't the right project at the time, maybe it didn't need to be seen through to the end. But in other cases, you know, it does kind of give me that sense of very, very stubborn persistence that that can be very, very good for working on something for eight years. Yeah, I would imagine. Definitely. I'm kind of jealous of that. Um, <laughs> but kind of kind of in line with that and kind of in line with that, that that level of persistence you were talking about. First off, congratulations on the pin bellwether. Um, oh, thank you. That's really exciting. And if I'm not mistaken, that was established by Barbara Kingsolver. Yes, it was. Okay, great. That's really good. Because if it wasn't, I would have been really embarrassed about this next question. Um, <laughs> But uh, I, I saw her speak years ago, mm-hmm. and she said this quote, and it stuck with me. And I, I'm paraphrasing, and I'm not even sure if you know she invented it. But she said that writing your first novel is kind of like taking your purse and dumping it out on the table and sifting mm. through all of the ideas you've ever had and kind of connecting them together in in what will become your first novel. Um, right. Does that does that ring true for you now that you've you've got a, a novel out there in the world? Yeah, I think that's a really good way of looking at it. Um, and, and there's sort of, there's sort of like 
when I when I was in the process of writing it, there were some times in which I was like, no, you know, maybe you should hold back on this idea. You should save it for the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I would have to kind of convince myself to put it in because I was like, who knows if there's ever going to be a next one or if you'll ever finish this. Like, you know, why not give it your all? Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wanted to it, right? But actually, this it reminds me of a conversation I had with the novelist Heidi Duro, who's another former Penn Bellwether prize mm-hmm. winner. And, and she gave me this advice um, after I'd published The Leavers, which was really helpful. And she's just like, she kind of talked about how writing your first novel is like, you know, taking how many years worth of your ideas and putting them kind of like Barbara said into one book. Um, but then when you go to write the next project, it's like the well is now dry and you have, you're starting from scratch. Um, sure. So her advice was really to keep on reading and accumulating those ideas because if you stop, then you're sort of like left with fewer fewer resources, <laughs> yeah, creative resources are drawn. You know? Your purse is is empty. Yeah, totally. But, but you know, I've always wondered. Um, I'm not sure if you're you're working on a, another novel or if you have any ambitions to do another novel. But I would imagine that once you've actually done it, it it's not as scary to do it again. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm I'm sort of in the very, very beginning stages of trying to work on something new um, mm. and not really sure where it's going to go. But yeah, knowing that you've managed to do it once definitely gives me the confidence to know that, you know, maybe it was a total fluke, but most likely I can do it again. No, that's, <laughs> so, no, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, kind of speaking to that, I, w- I want to talk about the book specifically, The Leavers. I didn't know anything about it when I started reading it. I had I had no outside information. Um, mm. which it was a, a really kind of refreshing way to get into a book. I haven't done that in a while where I've picked up something and didn't really know what it was going to be about. Um, yeah. And I wanted to talk actually about the very, very, very first line in the book. And it reads, The day before Deming Gao saw his mother for the last time, she surprised him at school. And personally, I think that's a fantastic opening line. But, oh, thanks. Yeah. I, I loved it. It like immediately caught me. And it. I wanted to kind of you know walk through and talk through the very specific tension that that line creates for the chapter that follows it. Because when I was mm-hmm. reading it, I like, I remember looking back to the cover and wondering like, is this a ghost story? Mm. Um, because I, it, I was so scared, like at any moment she was just going to disappear. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I know that w- really wasn't a, a, a concise question, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I love, I love that you mentioned that you, you knew nothing about it. Cause that's yeah. really my favorite place to be when I start reading a book. And it's so hard to not so hard to be in that place. Oh, definitely. You know, we're getting information all the time online and from friends. Um, um, but I, I always, I definitely try to like avoid reading. I don't even want to read Jackie copy when I mm. go into writing a book. You know, it's like the least I know, the better to kind of start from that pure place. Yeah. yeah, you know, it's kind of like how I mentioned that so much of the process was trying to figure out how to write a novel. Um, the novel went through a number of different first chapters and, you know, kind of first starting places, you know, different points of view and different kind of places and time that it started in. And I think there was there was like a previous draft in which it started kind of in time before that moment that it starts now, mm-hmm. right? So now that the first chapter start it starts on the day before his mother does kind of disappear, and there was originally I think scenes which kind of illustrated their life and their relationship um, before that. But I remember a reader, um, somebody I must have shown the draft to, saying like, "Why not start in the day that she disappears?" Like yeah. start in the, the action, you know, don't give yeah, us yeah. all that background, right? And I was like, oh, yeah, right, you know. <laughs> and so that kind of became the impetus to start it at that point. Yeah, and, you know, just kind of 
wanting to provide that first line that'll hopefully get readers reading um, yeah. that sense of suspense, right? Yeah, well, and I, I forget who said it. I'll have to look this up later, but I believe they said that surprise is when something happens that you didn't see coming, and suspense is when something happens that you knew was going to happen, and mm. that good writing always favors suspense over surprise. Oh, I um, like that. Yeah, it's I, I don't know who said it, but I think it's kind of like a base tenet of what makes a good kind of like a scary movie. So, right. you know, maybe you have a, right. a, a bright future in writing <laughs> horror books. Um, yeah, I mean, it makes sense because it's like readers like to feel smart, right? Yeah, it's definitely. Like we're watching, when we're watching movies, we want to feel like we're trying to solve the crime or solve mm-hmm. the mystery. So, you know, knowing there's a mystery, then like we're always working to try to figure out like, what is it? What is it? You know? Yeah, definitely. And, and I think writing in a way that allows your um, reader to feel intelligent I think there's a there's a definitely a craft to it, but I think you definitely you definitely pull it off because I feel a heck of a lot smarter. Uh, oh, good. Now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, kind of going back to that that first chapter, though, I do have another question. I, I think I might know the answer to it, but why why was it so important, or or even necessarily intentional, to endear the reader to Deming's mother so quickly? Because I found mm. like at the by the time she disappeared, like I already missed her. And it was only oh, yeah. 20, maybe 20 pages in, you know? Right. Um, well, it's written from Deming's point of view, mm-hmm. right? So I think we, or, you know, my point was to try to get the reader to feel his particular loss um, when she disappears. And, and so one way to do that is to sort of see her from his, from his eyes. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's every parent-child relationship has its own problems and issues and in particular kind of idiosyncrasies but um you know also seeing her her character and her uniqueness in an Mm -hmm. endearing way was also very important it also kind of added to that sense of narrative suspense that you mentioned um you know we we see we say we see her as a very endearing person we feel his loss and then we sort of find out more about her later in the novel that could yeah. kind of trouble our perceptions <laughs> a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's very similar to that emotion that you, we all feel that's kind of universal when you sort of grow up and you realize that your parents aren't these perfect protectors that we've sort of imagined them as. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one thing I really liked about uh, Demin's mother was that she was she never felt portrayed as like a saint necessarily. Yeah. But that also brings me to another thing I wanted to talk about, which was uh, in the book, whenever the narrative focuses on dimming it's in third person and then when it switches mm-hmm. to his mother it's in first person what is that trying to say well it was really sort of a series of decisions i think that i'd made through trial and error um mm-hmm. there were previous drafts in which it was two first person narrators somewhere they were both in third and i was trying to figure out a way for polly to kind of tell her life story but not necessarily in a real-time scene right um and and it just felt like when i when i was able to like use the first person for her sections and have her address her son as you Mm -hmm. in a way that she's talking to him but not literally talking to him it, it it became like a very natural way to sort of share her story Sure. Um, in a way that felt felt just kind of more organic with the rest of the novel. So that was really the reason for yeah. that decision. Yeah, it, it really struck me almost as if we were like hearing her internal monologue. Mm, great. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it really it really caught me. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I think it's I don't know of many books that I've seen kind of switch perspective so intently. 
So kind of going back to Dimming a little bit, who I really liked as a character. I really liked reading about him. He's kind of this hot mess. And those are always the most, I think, enjoyable characters to read. But he's one of only just a, a handful of Asian characters that I know of who doesn't fit into the you know typical stereotype of being really good at school. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I don't feel like he... Like, I read him as a very intelligent, very kind of worldly person, even in the chapters that focus on him being a little bit younger. So why why was it important for you to kind of portray him within this narrative, you know, kind of maybe a little bit more human like that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think of him being, you know, there's so many intelligent kids out there that are not necessarily excelling within the traditional school system, but maybe mm-hmm. it's not necessarily that they're not good at school, but that school isn't good for them. Sure. Or like, you know, it's not set up in a way that benefits them or really plays to their strengths. Um, yeah. And, you know, that decision was also something that I was thinking of pretty early on because a lot of the articles and, and that I was reading that inspired the Leavers um, kind of talked about how U.S. courts gave custody of these children mm-hmm. to American parents who were mainly white and middle class because they were kind of better off economically. So it, it seemed that it was sort of um, these cases were kind of presenting this question of whether or not having these educational resources or economic resources were necessarily necessarily made you a better parent, right? Sure. Um, which is one way to look at it. It's not necessarily true for mm-hmm. everybody. Um, so yeah, you know, kind of having that contrast set up seemed important to me, and it kind of a you know, an interesting way to explore that, um, making his white adoptive parents professors who really mm-hmm. value academia and education in a very specific kind of success. And 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 he's not necessarily going on with going along with that or, or wanting to go along with that and kind of presenting that tension between them. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because when you were kind of talking about the character characterization of Deming in school, it, it sounded almost exactly what his adoptive mo- mother says to him in the book. And one thing that I found really interesting about his adoptive parents was that I wanted, I wanted to hate them. Um, I really did. And slowly I just kind of fell in love with them. Um, Oh, that's so great to hear. Yeah. It was really surprising. Like I really fought it, but I I was wondering like, why was it important? Because it's kind of an archetype too, to have adoptive parents to be, uh, you know, almost abusive or terrible. Um, Mm. But in this case, I really felt I was just trying so hard. So, so why was it? Why was it so? I mean, I guess it, it feels like it would have been easy to make them villains, right? Maybe it would have. But why? Why was it important to portray them as as really trying hard and and trying to be mm. the good guys? Well, you know, I think it's definitely one of my goals to have characters to have all the characters sort of be these complicated and complex and as three dimensional as as most mm-hmm. people have. Um, so, you know, one of my goals as a writer is to kind of try to do that as much as I, as much as I capably can. Um, and, you know, I think it's realistic because nobody is really all a villain or mm-hmm. all a saint, you know, as you mentioned before, oh, right? Sure, so sure. even characters like Polly and Deming um, and Kane Peter, Deming's adopted parents, like they make mistakes, they screw up really badly, but they're also, you know, they also do loving, caring things and are capable of those things as well. Um, and it, it kind of creates a little more attention in the book, I think, and especially kind of, on on Deming's behalf, right? Because he's mm-hmm. sort of torn in some cases between like loving them and hating them, right? Yeah. He's in this new place, you know, he's gone through this great trauma. His parents, these adoptive parents don't understand him and don't necessarily really want to understand him. But at the same time, they're doing things that he 
also really likes, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and so like, he's, he's kind of in that place where he's like fraught um, in terms of how to feel about them. And that's kind of where I wanted my reader to be as well. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely felt that tension throughout. And it was really, really constantly surprising to me. But um, w- one of the things that I really enjoyed, one of the interactions between Deming and his, his adoptive parents was kind of the discovery of music. And I really like how music is used in this book. One thing I kind of noticed, and right off the bat, it, it happens a few times early on, and I was wondering if it was intentional. But um, when when Deming is a child, before before he is adopted and put into the foster program, um, he kind of describes a world in these large sort of swatches of colors. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he describes the Bronx is like these muted earth tones. He says blue and gray, and he just kind of lists off a lot of colors. But then also when he talks about music, he always talks about the colors that the sounds make. Yeah. Um, yeah. What, what can you, I don't know. Can you walk me through that a little bit? I'm just really interested by it. Yeah. He has a condition called synesthesia. Yes. Um, so it's something that people have <laughs> in real life. Um, yeah. Yeah. You can kind of, it's kind of like you're, you're seeing, you're using one sense and kind of responding to it with another sense, I mm-hmm, guess. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes it, it appears where people can smell things that they see or something like that, or, or you know, see, in, in um, Deming's case, specific colors in, um, in response to sound. Some people also see colors in response to certain words, which I think is really cool. Yeah, um, for sure. Yeah, you know, it's, I, it's something that I think I've always just thought was really cool. I knew people that had, had it and was always kind of, a little envious about it. I remember like talking to friends who had it and kind of mm-hmm. just wanting to know what it was like. Um, and then when I was writing, when I was writing the story, I knew that I wanted music to play a big part in it. Um, music is a big part of my life. Sure. And it felt like a really kind of interesting way to play with like these themes of language and sound mm-hmm. and like belonging, which I think are really central to the book. So by making that kind of one of Deming's quote unquote superpowers, it mm-hmm. kind of gives him, you know, something that, other kids don't have a special talent, a special way of seeing the world. Um, and it's kind of his own private language, right? He's kind of sure. like, you know, shuttled back between these two cultures and these these different languages and families and, and kind of sound and music are kind of something that end up belonging to him alone. That's really great. I was really hoping it was synesthesia. I, I, um, a few, uh, about a year ago, I interviewed a gentleman named Derek Amato, who is kind of a famous person because of his synesthesia and is like this very specific type that he has. Mm. Um, and I won't go into it too much, but he basically suffered a concussion and he woke up and his synesthesia developed to the place where he is now able to play the piano yeah. where before he was unable to. And a lot of that is because when he sits down, he can see sounds oh, um, wow. and that, that kind of empowers him to create music based on that. It's all, it's all very, very interesting. Yeah, um, so fascinating. Yeah, very so very cool. I wish yeah. I could do that. <laughs> I wish I could. I would do it if I could turn it off because I feel like it's got to get real annoying real fast. Right, 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 right. right. Um, <laughs> but uh, I do, I do want to talk a little bit more about the music in this book because I really did enjoy the use of it. One of the one of the first records that Demine finds, I think it actually is the first record that he finds, is "Are You Experienced" from Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix. Um, yep. What's what's the significance there, if any? Well, I was thinking of the kind of music that his adoptive father, Peter, would listen to, um, given his age, his demographic, mm-hmm. and that kind of fit, you know, that sort of classic rock kind of fit, um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I thought of kind of what would a kid be really into? And I yeah. thought of the sound, you know, the sound of Hendrix, and, you know, there's a little bit perhaps of 
a play on the fact that Hendrix was a black musician with a white band, you know, sure. working, you know, on the, on the cover, he's like a black man surrounded by these two white men and yeah, kind of yeah. paralleling Deming's own feelings of, you know, racial alienation in his new town. Oh, that's great. I, again, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you've brought up the kind of the duality there with Hendrix on the cover and, and him being a black musician and the two white musicians. Cause I really do feel like dual personalities is a really strong theme in this, in this book. Mm-hmm. And Deming, who, you know, of course, after he uh, is adopted, his name is changed to Daniel. What was what was the what was the importance of emphasizing that, especially from the viewpoint of, you know, telling a story about characters who have immigrated to America and that experience for them has been less than optimal, we'll say. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know what you mentioned about duality is something mm-hmm. that I often thinking of often thought about while writing and also kind of wanting to convey the kind of double consciousness feeling of like knowing that people are seeing you and looking at you in a certain way and being conscious of that, but having it not necessarily accurately represent who you are. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I I thought of names a lot because names are, names are really important, right? They're, they're our like soul identity. Mm -hmm. um, They're who we are yet. There's a sort of, there's a sort of way that we can change our names or have it be done to us, right? So when when Polly moves to the U.S., um, she decides to take on a new name herself. Yeah. It's sort of an empowering choice for her. She changes her name from Palon to Polly as, as part of her new identity, her new life, her new country. Um, and that's something that a lot of people do go through when they, they move to a new place, right? And when Deming's name is changed for him, it's sort of, you know, this is, this is also something that we've, that, not only adoptive children, but also, you know, many different migrants from different countries experience where they have their names changed for them because their original names might not be seen as, you know, easy enough to pronounce or, or like American enough Mm -hmm. or something like that. So, you know, Deming gets his name changed to Daniel really regardless of what he wants. And, and in that chapter, he's sort of, He's, he thinks of himself as Deming, but when people speak to him, they're saying Daniel. So it's that sort of dissonance where they're looking at him and seeing a certain person, a certain a certain boy, and he's kind of inside being like, "But that's not me." Yeah, it's it's really it's really effective. It really, you know, I, I found several scenes, especially of him in the new school, that from a different perspective wouldn't feel heartbreaking. But seeing mm. them from from Deming's and in that instance Daniel's view, it I I just it's very sad, very real, very honest. Mm. Um, Thanks. Oh, thank you. No, it's uh, it was, it was uh, great to read. But but kind of speaking towards all these themes a little bit, uh, I hope this isn't too creepy. But I did notice that I think yesterday you published an article with. Yeah, <laughs> right. I yeah. did. Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not creepy at all. It's on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know, some might call it stalking. I call it interview prep. Yeah, but, exactly, um, exactly. yeah. Quick Google found it, and I, I read it. It's very, very, very interesting. I also think very timely. I think one thing, you know, twenty seventeen has been a difficult year across the board. Yes, um, yes, to say the least. Yeah, so, some might call it a garbage fire, but um, <laughs> right or a dumpster fire. Probably. Dumpster fire, sure. Yeah, it's it's whatever it is. It's trash and it's on fire. Um, <laughs> and I think one thing that's uh, been really interesting from that is the discussion of racism in America. Um, mm-hmm. And especially, you know, I'm a, I'm a 30-year-old white male in San Francisco, and so I don't always have my pulse on the heart of racist America, per se, but it's, it's really nice to get perspective on that. I think that's one of my favorite things about reading fiction is that you kind of get to adopt 
the perspective of the author and of the characters. And you get to see mm. things that maybe uh, you wouldn't otherwise have seen. You know, because maybe you could look at uh, Deming's adoptive parents, for example, and they make certain choices that from Deming's perspective are hurtful. But from theirs, it's not. And it's just because maybe they're not as informed. Like, it's not necessarily an evil act, but it's still... You know, I don't know if I'm explaining that very well. But sure, sure. Yeah, it has re- repercussions. Yeah, regardless. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like the article that was on BuzzFeed really does connect to the themes in The Leavers very, very well. Like, I could definitely see a, a future publication of The Leavers, like, having that in the appendix. Mm. Um, but I had a few questions about that as it relates to The Leavers. First, you know, the the article is about... Um, it asks the questions, uh, who in America is allowed to be ordinary? And so do you see Deming as someone who is allowed to be ordinary, or do you see him as someone who suffered because he wasn't allowed to be ordinary? Mm. I mean, I don't know if ordinariness is necessarily his issue. Sure. I think he's suffered because he's sort of, his his family is sort of caught, you know, in the intersection of, of policy, right, um, of... And that was kind of one thing that I wanted to mm-hmm. portray in the book was just how, you know, we we hear about policies and immigration policies and, and um, detention policies, but mm-hmm. we don't necessarily understand how they might affect individuals, right? So, so that's sort of that's sort of like the great disruption and the great trauma of his life. Um, but you know, I think the novel has a somewhat happy ending uh, where we're both <laughs> him and Polly are trying to like, you know, throughout the novel, they're sort of trying to both figure out who they are and, yeah. and to live on their own terms and, and to kind of find that sense of family and, and belonging and home, even though it might not be a literal family or a literal home. So, you know, maybe in the future he does get to be ordinary, you know, once he's <laughs> sort of like broken out of, broken out of those um, expectations. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, was giving him um, an addiction to gambling? I guess I'll just ask the question: What, what was what was the thought process there? Why why was it important for Dimming to be uh, mm. a, a gambler? Well, I wanted definitely to have him be a mess. Yeah. Um, Mission and, accomplished. <laughs> yeah, and and gambling was actually a pretty prominent theme in the book fairly early on. Mm. One of the early names for the novel was actually jackpot, and and there there are, there are still a few scenes that where gambling takes place, where characters go play poker mm-hmm. or go to Atlantic City. There were some more in, in previous drafts as well that I took out. But, you know, it's kind of this theme of fate versus chance, I guess, mm-hmm. or, or fate and chance, um, you know, with, with gambling and risk-taking. It's it's sort of one way to look at the the risks that people do take gambling with their lives, I guess, um, sure. when, when they're, you know, like Polly paying $50,000 to get sm- smuggled into a new country in a box, right? You know, and, and moving to this new place in this yeah. new city where you don't know anybody and and you kind of have to figure out a way to live um, on your own. And, and that sort of is like a giant gamble with really big stakes, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so so having, having Deming be addicted to a lower stakes f- version of that to me was, was one way of sort of looking at those themes through him. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely mirrors Polly's decision to pay fifty thousand dollars to be brought in. Which fifty thousand is that really? Is that an accurate number? It is absolutely. Man, yeah, there's there's so a lot money. of there are a lot of much higher um, fees. You know, seventy five, eighty thousand. Um, yeah, most yeah. most of most everything in the book is something that I was able to verify through research. 
do you, how, how much uh, how much time do you think you spent researching? Oh, I don't know. Research is a really is a nice way to avoid writing. So <laughs> probably a lot a lot of time. Um, yeah. Yeah, research is research is really fun. You get to like read a lot about something you're interested in and, and you can kind of say like well i'm, I'm working my novel i'm mm-hmm. working my novel i'm just reading this giant website <laughs> yeah. but yeah you know i ended up doing a lot i, I wanted to make sure i got things to, to make things fairly authentic if if such a thing can be done sure no and i think i, I think it does add a lot to the novel and I, I i really do appreciate kind of being able to walk away from it and and really feeling like i learned a lot about the actual world um, mm-hmm. and specifically just, you know, again, how, how, how common these instances are, how common these stories are. And then just, uh, you know, the realization that it's happening around me, you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. it's a thought that will keep me up at night, I am sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess moving on to a question that's a little bit lighter, I want to ask you about a few of your nicknames. My nicknames? I found a list of nicknames for you on your website. No. Oh. Oh, well, those were nicknames. Right. I guess they're nicknames or they're kind of just things I was. Okay. <laughs> Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. The yeah. first one, Triple Scorpio. What's a Triple Scorpio? <laughs> well, you know, it's like, listen, I'm not really an astrology expert, sure. um, though I, I do believe in some parts <laughs> of it. Um, but I guess, you know, you can be like a double sign you know if you have the sign is in your like sun and moon and some other planet um but i found out i was not a double scorpio which i thought i was for many years but actually a triple scorpio when a friend did a reading for me a few years ago and i thought that was just really cool (laughs) because i feel like i feel like whatever persona that scorpio is supposed to be reflects me fairly accurately and so being triple being three (laughs) times that um (laughs) felt (laughs) felt like it felt like something to uh put on my website what 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 makes someone a triple scorpio is it like what how do you earn that title (laughs) it's really just based on the time you were born and the Mm. place you were born so it's some kind of astrological like depending on what stars are in what i don't know path that's at that certain time it's it's kind of interesting what what makes it yeah okay well good to know Um, another uh, title attributed to you is musical Tourette's (laughs) musical Tourette's right yes yeah I think a really good part of my brain is is just like a data bank of obscure and terrible 80s lyrics so I'll often find myself sort of I don't know I guess you know I, I kind of see certain phrases and then I think of puns that um are are lyrics and and then Mm -hmm. i think of other lyrics you know my boyfriend lives with me and he has to see this all the time um (laughs) (laughs) but it's it's kind of annoying but i think it's very do do you have do you have maybe an example i don't want to put you on the spot but i'm I'm so interested by this now well sometimes i'll do like (sighs) the golden girls theme song is something that often comes up in my head so you know instead of thank you for being a friend it might be like Thank you for mopping the floor or something like that. You know, just yeah. <laughs> many, many other really, you know, ridiculous examples. Do you, do you find yourself maybe singing aloud to yourself a lot in that fashion? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely Unfortunately, the same. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It is unfortunate. I'm always embarrassed when I realize I'm doing it. But like if I'm putting away the dishes or even, even if I'm in a store and I'm trying to find something, I will sing the process of finding it to myself. Oh, do you have yeah. a certain song that you sing it to or you just make up the song? I always make it up and it's always like a really cheesy 90s pop song. 
<laughs> which is not my style of music at all. It fits uh, with the drugstore, though. It, yeah, it fits with the drugstore exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, what are what are what are some of your favorite bands? I won't ask for your most favorite because that's a difficult question. But what are some some oh of your favorites? Oh my god, I don't even know. That's too difficult of a question. I listen to many many things. <laughs> so. That's great. Did <laughs> yes. you did you find yourself listening to one type of music or even one album while working on the Levers? Well, I actually have a Levers mixtape, which is oh. on my website. And it's also on the web- on the website Large Hearted Boy, which yeah. has playlists from authors. So, yeah, I'll tend to make certain playlists for stories and novels and even characters and listen to them while I write to sort of get get in the mood of whatever time I'm writing in. Do you do you remember any examples from that mixtape? Let's see. That mixtape has I think some Bowie, some Arthur Great. Russell, definitely some Jimi Hendrix. Fantastic. Glad to, glad to hear about the Bowie. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Classic. The, the last uh, uh, nickname I want to ask about is, because I think it's very interesting, is yeah. Recovering Night Owl. Oh, yes. Recovering Night Owl. I used to be an insomniac. Um, oh. Uh, I, th- I still think my, my tendency is to stay up very, very late. At different points in my life, I've been entirely nocturnal and, mm-hmm. and sort of just slept, slept through the morning, um, which is actually a really terrible way to live. <laughs> so I have this like never-ending desire to be a morning person, and I don't think I'll ever actually be it's a natural impossible. morning person. Some it's... people are really good at it, but I, I really like working in the morning. I feel like my writing is better in the morning, and I like kind of getting it done before I have to do everything else. So slowly but surely, I'm sort of getting there. I've, I've like cut back on coffee and you mm. know do a lot of other boring things to try to like get myself asleep before <laughs> one a.m. Yeah, no, I, I found that cutting out coffee—not just all caffeine, but coffee specifically—really yeah. helped me get up, yeah. which I feel like is kind of anti-intuitive like I would not have thought that but it really did help um I know but... yeah surprise right yeah surprise <laughs> don't drink coffee right. uh, <laughs> uh but yeah no, I know I don't think I'll ever be a morning person I've tried very hard but whenever I sit down to write I feel like if it's not late at night then I'll just procrastinate until it is late at night and then that's when I finally uh, am able to like be productive mm, mm, but interesting um, yeah so yeah well, I'll have to I'll have to email you offline for some tips on how to not be a night owl because I would right love, right <laughs> yeah I would love to function like a normal human being at some point. <laughs> I know it's I'm so envious of people who are like naturally morning people. I don't I you know it's so cool. <laughs> it, it is great though to be out here in in San Francisco. I'm not from here originally. I mean, who is in the Bay Area? But it's nice to be out here and and the workday doesn't really start until like 10 a.m. Mm-hmm. Some people don't come into the office till 11 and they'll work till you know, 7 p.m., 7.30, and then go home. But it's really nice to not have the pressure of having to be somewhere by, like, 8 o'clock. Yeah, definitely. Um, That makes it even harder. That would kill me, I think. Um, (laughs) So I don't want to take up too, too much more of your time, but I did kind of want to ask one more, one final question. Um, Yep. You've done a lot of writing outside of novels, but, of course, with The Leavers, um, it's, it's really great. It's a great accomplishment, something I'm sure you are but should definitely be proud of. And I was wondering, you know, from that process, what advice would you give to someone who wanted to write a book? You know, let's say, mm. like, w- what are some things that you wish you knew when you started writing The Leavers? Hmm. I mean, one of my greatest pieces of advice was pretty much just don't give up. Mm-hmm. Um, because so much of writing is 
incredibly discouraging and full of rejection and, and loneliness mm. and you know yeah. <laughs> despair you know and all that but to really you know believe in your project and to believe in yourself and to know that if it's something that like if you keep thinking about it and you're the best person to write the story then you've got to write it yeah. don't let someone else beat you to it right <laughs> How, how do you know when you're the best person to write a story? <laughs> I guess you, you just kind of obsess about it. When, when you realize that like quitting feels worse than, like, than having to keep going, I guess. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> the idea of giving up feels worse than just making yourself sit down and work on it. Yeah, yeah can, pretty I can, much. I can relate yeah. to that. Um, well, great. Thank you again so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. I really do appreciate it. It's, I've been really looking forward to talking to you about this book and... Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Dave. Yeah, thanks. Well, that does it for this episode of Script Chat. I'd like to thank Lisa Ko for taking the time to speak with us about her amazing novel, The Leavers, and I'd also like to thank you for listening. And don't forget, you can read The Leavers right now on Script. If you're not yet a Script member, you can read free for 30 days just by signing up. All you have to do is visit Scribd.com and become a member. That's Scribd.com, S-C-R-I-B-D dot com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.